And she would read from her humongous paper Bible, but you should know we're, we're jumping around in the text today. We're not going to read the whole of the two chapters. So I suggested it's easier for her to follow along in the app. So don't think less of her. It's also bigger print. Is that? Yeah, that's it too. See, I got a large print right here. Boom. Okay. All right. Numbers 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, 
The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Hmm. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your works, your great works that you have done. Lord, in the past and in our lives as well, God. And we pray that you would encourage us today as we delve into this story and learn more about you in the process, God. And we just pray that you would um, strengthen our hearts and help us to uh, serve you, Lord, with full obedience. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. You want to walk away again? Ah, such a rich text that is full of so much. That even in the reading of, oh, like, oh, I want to do a sermon on that that verse right there. But I'll uh, I'll keep what we've prepared for this morning. I'm not so charismatic, but I'm going to change it in the moment. Right? Who said, "Come on"? Okay. Well, let's see where we go. Dave said I got to be short today because there's cake. Um, but we'll see. All right, living by faith is not easy, but it is good. What you're, you're called to do, who you are called to be, those that live by faith. That's not actually an easy thing, but it's a good thing, like really good. So the, the question I want to put before us this morning as we start is, what are you afraid of? You know, what worries you, what keeps you from acting on what you know is right, what you are supposed to be doing and move into and trust the Lord in. Uh, Chapman University actually has a yearly survey of American fears that I think might be helpful to us this morning as we think of that question of what are we afraid of. And they don't have results for 2023 yet too early in the year, but these are the top 10 fears of Americans in 2022. See if you had any of these. The 10th biggest fear, all of them are over 51% of those surveyed had this fear, was biological warfare. Uh, we could Clearly there was some war happening that was more prevalent in the news. And nine is pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. Eight is economic or financial collapse. Seven is not having enough money for the future. As we read those two, I'm like, why aren't they one and two? That's my life, right? <laughs> Six is pollution of drinking water, which is funny because Americans have the cleanest drinking water in the world. It's almost absurd, but that you're scared it's going to be polluted. Uh, The U.S., number five, the U.S. becoming involved in another world war. Number four, people I love dying. Number three, Russia using nuclear weapons. It would worry some folk. People I love at number two, people I love becoming seriously ill and 
I don't know why I say ill weird. Did you notice that? Yeah, so ill. Ill. Like, yeah, it's, I'm from the streets, people. Get over it. Okay, the number one fear in 2022 of Americans. Are you ready for this? Corrupt government officials. I, is that a fear or just an expectation? Like, I don't, I don't know what happens. So there, there's five spheres of fear from just that, that result of that survey. It's corrupt government. Harm to loved ones, war, environmental concerns, and economic concerns. And I wish they would do, and if we could work with the data, maybe they have this subset of, what do Christians fear? So I think that would be helpful for us to think through, because we are a people that are to claim the truth, right, of Second Timothy 1. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and a love and a self-control, right? I want to say sound mind. What translation is that? Right? But still, even when we have those refrains, that call in Scripture, I look in the mirror and in light of my own sin and living under the weight of caring for my family, the task of leading a church, I wonder, as I look, what am I afraid of? And in our study of numbers, we have thought deeply about who we are to trust of what our treasure is and how life is meant to be lived in light of these truths. And again, we come to maybe what is the most well-known event in Numbers, and we see a bold contrast between fear and faith. And I think it's, it's timely for us just as humans, but it's timely for us as a church, because given the landscape of our time in Christendom and the wilderness that is life post-COVID in the North here and distrust of institutions, the change of trajectory of the future, churches have to plan and look different. And it's a key reason that we're studying through the book of Numbers, this wilderness journey we find ourselves in. Where can we find hope in the midst of that? But not only is that just the cultural and the experiential reality of humanity at this moment, as a church, we begin to think of moving our own camp and relocating physically where we worship on Sundays and do life during the week. And we're praying, wondering where our promised land is supposed to be. And so it fits. And one of our elders last week during our meeting described what he sensed was uh, an inflection point for us as a church. And that's just a time of significant change of a situation or a turning point. Or to use mathematical terms, since he's a physicist, I think that's appropriate, right? It's the point in a curve at which the change in direction of that curvature changes. It's where things move up or move down, and so we're (laughs) praying they move up, right? And so even in the midst of that, that sense that like something's happening, the Lord has given us such a deep sense of community, love for one another, and a call to mission. Like, how will he use us for his glory and the good of the kingdom? Yet in the midst of that, we're faced with the question, will fear temper our boldness? Will fear attempt to eliminate risk at any turn? Like, do we have to have everything just safe and the way it is? Will faith move the needle at all for us as a people? This is the truth that living by faith is not easy, but it is good. And that's a pretty tame, big idea, because good should actually be, like, amazing. It's like what you were meant for. So what do we see in this story? We see the people of God, Israel, they're camped in the wilderness of Paran, which is on the edge of the promised land. They are like in Chula Vista, and Mexico is the promised land, 
right? And they've just come off of complaining and correction. We've seen it in the last two chapters. There's been complaint, grumbling, God brings correction, and there's mercy as uh, someone intervenes on their behalf. And the mercy of God is applied over and over again. And then the Lord has Moses send spies, 12 of them, one from each tribe, to scope out the land to see what is theirs, what he has promised them. It's fascinating to me. We need to notice that everyone on this trip, all 12 of them, see the exact same things. The promised land is amazing. But not everyone, actually most, don't want to go into this amazing place. It's the difference, I think, between fear and faith. So we want to look at what fear misses and what faith understands. So we start with what fear misses. And I have to tell you, I have more colors for my icons. Not that they're going to be any better, but I'm going to draw this and you tell me. Grapes. Woo! You got, okay, is that enough? Okay. Well, it's got to be a huge cluster of grapes, right? That's what we read. Okay, those are grapes. Stop drawing before it gets... Awful, right? <laughs> Explicit, as people say. But these are these are great grapes, but they're not getting them, right? So we saw in the story, and we see it. Everyone, all the spies, see the exact same thing, and we see it in verse twenty-one through twenty-four of chapter thirteen. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebo Hamath. And they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahanaman, uh, Sheshai, and Talmai. And if I, my Hebrew is bad, you don't know. So Derry might, but he'll be okay, right? The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes And they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. And that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. So Eshkol actually just means cluster, right? So this is the Valley of Clusters. And how cool is that? They found a cluster of grapes so large that two of the men had to carry it on a pole between them. How many of you have been to Grape Day Park? downtown Escondido. It's one of the gems of Escondido. And this is a picture of its slide, Roger. You ready? There it is. The slide in the playground is a humongous cluster of grapes. And I have to tell you, when I read this, like immediately that's the picture that came in my mind. Not so much with the slide down the middle, but a huge cluster of grapes. And we live in Escondido, which means what? Hidden Valley and our big park is Grape Day Park. Well, so, okay, so there's, I'm maybe overreading the text, but just let, let me go with it, right? So this is the image I've had in my mind all week, this humongous, luscious, great cluster of grapes. And they also had pomegranates and figs. It is a fruitful land. Like, this is the place you want to be. It's why most of us moved to sunny San Diego, because it's just so beautiful. It feels heavenly and perfect. I want you to to notice, you can take that picture off, but if you're looking for a place, Broadway and Valley Parkway, right there, you can take your kids and go down the slide. It's really great. 
But I want you to notice that they traversed, like the geography that they covered for 40 days, right? This is a significant amount of time. They went all of the way north into the promised land and back, and they faced, in those 40 days, absolutely no opposition or harm in this expedition. They see the huge people. They see the thick-walled cities. They go throughout the whole of the land, and no one tries to cut them down, capture them, harm them in any way. And they come back, and they report back what they saw. And they show the fruit, and they confirm that it is, in fact, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is really good. It is ripe for the harvest. I love that in verse uh, 20 of This is where I want a whole new sermon. He says, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now is the time, the season of the first ripe grapes. It's not only is it a good land, the harvest is ready for them. And this is their promise, right? Where the redemption was destined to deliver them into this land flowing with milk and honey that had uh, amazing fruit that would care for them, provide for them. These are people who just complained about having manna every day for food. And they get the, the fruit of the promised land. They get to taste it and smell it. Have you ever had a spiritual experience eating a mango? Yes, right? Uh, no? Okay, well, some other fruit? Like, that's, that's what came to mind. I love mango. But you bite into fruit, and it's juicy and ripe, and it's perfect. And that's like, that's what the new heavens is going to be like. That feeling all the time. It's amazing. But, we hear in the text, however, as the spies report, the people there are strong with fortified cities, so many to subdue. And one of the spies, Caleb, he, he tries to quiet the people and stir them to action. It says, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. The voice of faith, though, in the midst of fear and all the other men, save Joshua, say, we can't do it. They're too strong. And they bring a bad report and they say that they were like grasshoppers in the land. That they're just small and insignificant compared to who dwells there. And these are the leaders we have to recognize. These are the chiefs of the tribes. These are the ones leading whole clans, whole tribes, whole families of people representing them. And they let fear rule and it spreads throughout the whole congregation. We see there's more grumbling against Moses and Aaron, crying out, we will die, oh. And again, the same thing, it's better back in Egypt. Can't we just go back to slavery? And in fear, they desire to find someone else to follow that would take them back into that slavery. It's absurd as we read it. Before we're too hard in Israel, I want us to see our reflection in their faces. I mean... They had a reasonable fear, didn't they? Right? Archaeological surveys and digs from that era proved the cities had substantial walls. There were significant cultures in the promised land. The people, the pictures we have from Egypt and other places that describe Canaanites, they are a large people. And they're vast in numbers in the land. And if Israel were to go into the promised land at that moment and take it for themselves, some would certainly die by the sword. 
Just happens in war, happens in battle. And what about the kids? Our sweet little kids that we give manna to every day. And they say, our wives and our little ones will become prey. And I suppose they're not wrong in that fear. And it's fascinating to see it unfold for Israel because they are in a between, they're between in this moment. They're between where they were in Egypt, in slavery, in bondage, in oppression, and where they're supposed to be, which is the promise, this fruitful land. And yet they prefer the status quo of, or even just a regression over continuing to where they actually belong. And after all, it's just, it's what they know and what they're comfortable with. And imagine voices in the camp, can't we just keep things as they are? One writer says the Israelites should be marching into the promised land with full faith in the Lord. Instead, they continue in disbelief, as they did in chapters 11 and 12, with a full-scale revolt against the Lord. Those who reject the Lord's covenant promises will not enjoy his covenant blessings. And fear rules the day in this story. And I think we're like this. And maybe not you, but I certainly am. The commotion of the world um, comes and worry weighs me down. Right? I, I don't take the Lord at his word uh, for his provision or what he's going to do for me or what he has already accomplished for me. I end up preferring what is comfortable over what is stretching in my faith, even when I know it's what's right. And it's what I preach to you. Oh, and the kids. What might they miss out on if I live by faith? I can't put them in strange and dangerous places for the glory of Christ, can I? Your fears always are attached to those things which you make your security instead of God. And they attach to your idols. And therefore, fear is always really a fear, for me, of failure. But I want you to know, In reading this text and seeking the Lord this week, I am resolved today to not live in fear. Because fear misses something here, and I can't miss it, and I do not want you to miss it as well. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are, the spies say. All fear sees is self. It's not wrong, but it forgets who they are. Or more importantly, whose they are. What faith understands, and we're not quite to that point yet, but it's a bit of a spoiler, is that they belong to someone else. And someone else has their care, and someone else has promised to give them the land. And Joshua and Caleb get it, and they tear their clothes in grief before the people. It's like a pay attention moment, and they say to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. It's safe to say, as we've said almost every week in our study of Numbers, Yahweh has proven himself. 
He is powerful. He provides. He has redeemed them from slavery and oppression. They can trust him. And Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. Doesn't matter if they're giants. Yahweh is the Lord of the cosmos. Caleb and Joshua say, Yahweh delights in us. Do not rebel against him. Fear rejects, rebels against the Lord. And to rebel against God is, and to be scared of the people here is the exact same thing. To be fearful is rebelling against God. To be scared of the people when God says, go do this, is to be scared and rebel against his plan, against him. They're not two different things. It's the same thing. One old preacher says, when the people ascribe death and destruction to God, right? They've said, oh, he's just brought us here to kill us. And by suggesting that he led them purposely for that, to get them to die in the wilderness, they actually disparage his essential life-giving character. They are blaspheming God. And what happens? The glory of the Lord appears, and he says he is ready to strike them down and disinherit them to start over. And then Moses, he always does. He intervenes, and he pleads for mercy, and he calls on God's reputation and character to save the people. We see this in chapter 14, verses 15 through 19. This is Moses speaking to God. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring the people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Like Moses just reminds, God does not need to be reminded, but Moses reminds God who God said he was. And God pardons, but he promises that none of the men that spoke against him will see the promised land. In fact, the whole generation will die in the wilderness. Everyone 20 years and older will miss out on this promise. And God says, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. The spies, all except Joshua and Caleb, will die of a plague for bringing the bad report. Immediately, and the people realize their mistake in this story, and it's fascinating because they just keep rebelling, and they attempt to go into the land because, oh, okay, well, we should go into the land then now, and they're defeated right away because the ark didn't go with them, and Moses did not go with them. It's no longer that generation's promise. They 
were subdued by fear and they missed what God said would be theirs. And we have to understand, even in our day, fear still tries its best as a tool of the accuser to keep us from promise. Love this quote from Tim Kelly. He says, when you are afraid of anything, when you are afraid you won't have money because money is your security, when you're afraid you won't have your looks because your looks are your security, when you are afraid you won't have somebody to hanging, be hanging on your arm because a relationship is your security, when you're afraid of this or you're afraid of that, don't you see what you're doing is you are giving more weight to that than God. You are treating him with contempt. When you're afraid of anything, what you're really saying is, God is a small thing, smaller than this. This is bigger. This is more than God can handle. So fear misses the promise. Fear misses God. Fear misses the reality of his care. And it misses his word. But there is another way, isn't there, in our story. And this demands... A new cluster of grapes. But it's a cluster they get. And we know this. We know that faith understands it is God who delivers us and brings us into the land. Right? We saw it in verse 30 of chapter 13. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. That is the voice of faith. That is one who knows who Yahweh is and what he's promised. And then in chapter 14, he says, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. And the fruit of that faith, God reporting back that the people were going to miss out says this of Caleb. And he says, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess. Of the 12 spies that go up, only two get to see the promised land. They're the only ones of their generation that will get to see what God has covenanted with his people to deliver. And from the word of God, from his promise, faith acts. Faith moves. Faith uh, takes up what is to be theirs. What promises have you been fearful to believe, friends? If you disbelieved his provision, his care for you, and he's promised? What if Christ's keeping of you, that you are saved, and that's not going to change because it's his work, not your own, that keeps you? Or even your sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Are you in disbelief, thinking you have to provide the work there, that it's not something he's promised to do for you? The righteous shall live by faith, and that is our calling as a people that belong to Jesus, to trust in the Lord, to believe him, to live in light of that reality. And courage and faith, really, in the Bible, are exactly the same different, or the same thing. Courage is considered a moral trait along with love, along with patience, along with honesty. And it's a moral character and it's something that God expects from us. So this is the courage of faith and what's more. And this is tremendously good for us because when we do not live courageously, when fear gets the best of us, oh, we have an advocate for us. 
We have a sure inheritance that won't be taken away because another has faced fear for us. I couldn't help this week but see the picture of Jesus in the garden. That his ministry has come to a close. His hour has come. He invites the men that follow him to scope out the land in prayer with him. And he sees giants in that moment. And Luke tells us, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Death before him, the agony of taking on all of humanity's sin, fully meeting wrath for those that would be saved, but knowing what it would produce, he still chooses the Father's will. Because Jesus acted in faith, we can ourselves now. Because he took on our sin and its punishment. Because he gave us his righteousness, his inheritance, his promise, his life. We can live with faith in him and his purpose for us. Because Jesus went to the cross in faith, living by faith in the Father. We can rightly hear him say, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. And fear not, little flock, for it's your father's Good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We, we could go on. Faith sees the promise and then lives accordingly, doesn't it? Life in the wilderness is full of trials and hardship. I love that. Even that picture of Jesus living by faith. Like he prays, Father, I will do your will, not mine. An angel ministers to him, but he's still in agony. And we have to ask when we hit these trials, will it expose our hearts? And when that happens, is that going to be a hardening of our hearts by the difficulties so that we want to turn back? Or is it going to be a purging by them so that we long all the more to press onward into the heavenly land that is held out before us? Because God's plan for you is not going back. It is not regression. God's plan for the kingdom is not smaller. It is larger. And when faith is what we live by, we look to Christ who in the wilderness lived on God's word, who died and lives as our mediator to assure us of God's steadfast love for us and who by his supper feeds us with the powers of the age to come. We are strengthened to endure the journey of faith marked out before us. And the results will be glorious. There's fruit to be harvested. 
There's milk and honey. There is care. There is love. There are image bearers that are dying to know of God's love for them. 1990, Tim Keller preached a sermon. He had been in New York for two years at this point. And he, he talked about his fear of going to New York. He and Kathy had driven around New York on their way to a trip and been stuck in traffic for like four hours or something. And compared to Pennsylvania, where they were from, these were a bunch of giants to him. And he said, why am I afraid of failure? Do I live by my performance or by the grace and righteousness of Christ? Have I gotten this far on the basis of my efforts and my smarts, on the basis of my discipline? Or have I come here sheerly by the grace and righteousness of Christ? What if God is calling me to fail anyway? So what? I have his love. I have his kindness. And if he does call me to fail here, he will only use this failure to prepare me for something he knows is better for me. My worthiness is not in my success. The reason I'm scared is because I have held on to this life raft, but Jesus is my security. And as a result, I don't have to worry about the failure here. I am free from that. And we can say that about anything that is our fear, any idol that is trying to lure us into a safe, comfortable place of sin and nothingness. And Jesus is saying, come, I have you. So what will you risk? How will you respond? How will we as a church march into the valley of Eshcol? My dear friend, Ben Todd, he shared his thoughts. Many of you know him. He's in a place where Christians are persecuted. But he shared his thoughts on this story. And he said, we stand between the promised land in Egypt, between the abundant suffering and joy God offers to those obedient to, call, to the call to make disciples of all nations, and between the seductive promises of comfort, freedom, and security that come with the shackling ourselves back onto our proverbial little Egypt." We can choose to recall the taste of the grapes that are God's promises and thereby lean into him as our refuge and strength as we go about his business. Or we can back away from the task, mistaking all of the risks and challenges as ones we have to meet and overcome ourselves. Living by faith is not easy, but it is oh so good. Some fear has a point. It seems so real. Jesus, however, calls us to see him, to understand his purpose in us, his power for what lies ahead. And it makes me think of my children being scared of jumping into the pool for the first time. Their daddy was ready to catch them, urging them on. And when they finally jump, they learn how fun it is. I want to hear my father's voice. And I want to jump into his arms, into his promise, a life that is lived from the finished work of Christ for his fame. And we begin with confession. We have a confession from the daily office, from the daily prayer app that Roger will project. And I would like you to recite it with me. Maybe. No. Okay, it's in your app. Who has the app? The Uversion app. Bring it up. I'll say a line and you repeat it. How's that? Does that make it easier? 
Okay. Most merciful God. I confess that I have sinned. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what I have done. And what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I am truly sorry and I humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on me and forgive me. That I may delight in your will. And walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. And from confession, we just ask for help to live by faith. That his spirit that dwells in you would remind you, encourage you, and spur us on to the faith and life he's called us to. There is something bigger than fear. His name is Jesus. Shall we see the land and go up at once and occupy it? For we are well able to overcome it. Because the favor of the Lord is upon us by the blood of Christ. Faith for his fame. My friend Ben also made me aware of a simple, beautiful song by a guy named Brian Wages. that's called Grapes from Canaan. And Ben doesn't know whether it's precisely his intent as an author or not, but for us, his lyrics captured the invitation that is offered by the grapes of the Valley of Eshcol precisely. He sings, Have you seen the grapes from Canaan land? They give us hope for what lies just ahead. And I know there are giants there. And I know there are giants there. And I know there are giants there. But I don't care. Would you go with me? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we've confessed our sin and our disbelief and our um, latching on to fear over faith. But Jesus, we know because you lived a life of faith in our place with perfect obedience that now we can step in to a life like that ourselves. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to see your promise, the truth of who we are in you and that you are always with us, that there is nothing we should fear because you have us. You've given us purpose and you will be glorified. As surely as your glory will fill the earth, you have good in store for us. Help us to see it and live for your fame. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We're going to move into a time of reminder and the truth that we see in the Lord's Supper.